Hello guys, Jonathan Wildman here. I'm the, um, the main host of the Intersection podcast. I recorded this edition of the podcast, or the, the majority of this edition of the podcast, um, before the tragic terrorist atrocity that um, hit London, Westminster in London, on Wednesday. Um, my thoughts go out to all of the victims of that cowardly attack. My thoughts go out to those who didn't survive, those who were injured, and those affected by what took place. Um, I'm a Londoner myself, so it makes it all the more raw and all the more harrowing. Um, and my praise goes out to um, the police and the emergency services that did a good job trying to keep things under control as best as possible. Um, as always, these things... Um, it's a sad state of affairs, but you know what? The greatest act of defiance against such terror is just to continue on as normal. So keep it safe, guys. Um, stay vigilant. That's important, too. And uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. This is The Intersection. The intersection. This is the Intersection Podcast, recorded Wednesday the 22nd of March 2017. Episode 10, Cybersecurity, Parental Control. The Intersection Podcast is only made possible through the support of its listeners and sponsors. If you have a product or service that you feel may appeal to our audience, please contact sponsor at intersectioncast.com. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of The Intersection. The Intersection is the podcast that bridges together the worlds of tech and pop culture. My name is Jonathan Wildman. I'm your main host for the show. And um, we've had uh, quite a lot of tech news uh, during the past week, particularly news concerning Apple with the release of some new products or some new variations of existing products to be more specific. So without further ado, let's begin the show. Now, on Tuesday, Apple um, silently released um, a number of new products um, on their online store. Uh, the store went down for several hours uh, and appeared with, 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 with these new products. Now, a lot of people were expecting Apple to hold a spring event. Uh, but as we reached the end of March, no invitations were sent to members of the press. So it seems like Apple have nothing major to announce just yet, which is why they haven't opted for an event. But we did get some updates released. So I'll go through some of the updates uh, that, that were actually um, announced. Um, so Apple have uh, updated the iPad. And when I say the iPad, this is not the fabled iPad Pro 2 that we were expecting, although I still think we'll get that later on in the year. Um, there were rumours that there would be an update to the iPad Pro, which would uh, be an update to the smaller one, the 9.7 inch and the larger one, um, but uh, would actually have, uh, the, the form factor remain the same, but it would actually have a larger screen area than 9.7 inches for the, for the for that or, and 12.9 inch respectively, uh, simply because the bezels would be 
uh, reduced or it, they may have an edge-to-edge display. Um, so we haven't seen that. We could still see that later on. We could st- still see that around the time of WWDC in June. Um, however, what we did see is an update to, I would say, the iPad Air 2. Now, this isn't the iPad Air 3. This is simply called iPad. So Apple have gone back to um, making the uh, the naming conventions a little, make a little bit more sense because it was getting confusing. We had iPad Mini, we had iPad Air, we had iPad Pro. So now it's just gone back to iPad. Now, interestingly enough, um, iPad um, is essentially an update to the Air 2, but has a faster A9 processor. Now, the thing with iPad is that um, it is not an iPad Pro. You've got to remember that. So the fact that it's not an iPad Pro means that certain features are missing. And I will go through some of those for you, actually. Um, first of all, the most obvious one would be, um, as it's not an iPad Pro, there will be no smart connector, which means you won't be able to use um, accessories such as the smart keyboard. Um, there won't be any um, Apple Pencil support, so you won't be able to use that for um, sketching. Um, there also won't be a true tone display. Now, if you remember the iPad Pro 9.7 inch, not the earlier larger one, but the 9.7 inch that was released last year, um, that has a true tone display, which basically means um, the uh, the brightness and the the white balance, I would say, um, and the, the level of blue lighting um, will adjust depending on your surroundings and the, the, the natural light or the artificial light around you. So it makes the iPad easier to read. Um, there's obviously a sensor in the iPad Pro that uh, sort of um, monitors the lighting and then it makes the adjustments accordingly. So the new iPad, which is just called iPad, Let's not get confused. And Apple actually referred to iPad fifth generation um, doesn't have those features. Um, funny, enough on, funny enough on that, um, iPad fifth generation isn't quite accurate because they call it that. But the the fourth generation iPad was the one that was the first one way back that introduced the lightning um, connector to the iPad line. That was the fourth generation. But since then, we've had the iPad Air and the iPad Air 2. So really, it's not the fifth generation is it it's the seventh generation um it's getting a little bit confusing but i'm glad that you know it's just called ipad now um basically um i'm trying to go through some of these differences because it is it can be quite confusing um yeah so that's essentially it also um it is a little heavier than the ipad air 2 and obviously the iPad Pro. Now that's a bit strange, and I'm not sure why, because um, there is no new technology inside it. It has the same technology. I mean, it has a faster processor to the iPad Air, but that won't increase the um, the weight. Um, and it obviously um, has Touch ID and all that sort of thing. But again, it has no bearing on the weight. Um, it doesn't have a flash, a camera flash like the iPad Pro. So there's nothing, no additional technology going into it. But um, for some reason, um, it's slightly um, bulkier, um, thicker and heavier than the iPad Air 2. Now, I don't want to alarm you too much, um, but it's about 20% thicker than the iPad Air 2. But 
what you're looking at really is an increase of 1.5 millimeters of thickness. Um, so, okay, um, the iPad Air 2 was uh, 6.1 millimeters and 0 0.96 pounds in weight. Um, the new iPad is 7.5 millimeters and it weighs 1.03 pounds. Now, it probably won't mean much of a difference to you in real world terms, but it, it just, just be aware of what you're getting. Nonetheless, the iPad Air line is, is over. It's gone. It's discontinued. I mean, you can probably get some iPad Air 2s um, available, um, you know, if you look you know, clearance and, 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 and various stores and so forth. But um, the, air, the airline seems to be done, which is good. Um, it's a good thing to have to have that sort of clarification and to think, think for the naming conventions to make a little more sense. Um, now, basically, um, the iPad, the new iPad is actually priced quite reasonably from my point of view. And when I say price quite reasonably, obviously, I mean in relation to um, iPad prices uh, before it. Uh, it still has the added Apple premium. But nonetheless, you can get this new iPad. Um, it begins from £339, just £339 for the, um, the Wi-Fi only version at 32 gigabytes. Now, if you're a casual user, you just occasionally use an iPad to check your email or check your Facebook, that's perfectly fine. 32 gigs is fine. And you have cloud storage, iCloud, Dropbox, OneDrive, whatever you want for anything bigger. Or if you um, do use your iPad more to create content, you probably want something a little larger. Now, Apple have gotten rid of the middle 64 gigabyte tier, which is quite smart from their point of view because it's either have next to no storage for very, very casual users or go all in at 128 gigs. So the 128 gig model is £429. And that's the model I would probably recommend most people to get. Um, now... In terms of, and again, that's for the Wi-Fi only model. Uh, in terms of the Wi-Fi plus cellular model, which um, has the SIM card slot, so you can put in a 4G uh, SIM card for uh, connectivity on the go, um, you're looking at £559 for the 128 gig model and £469 for the 32 gig model. Now, um, personally, I think those with good data plans and who have iPhones or maybe any, any other smartphone device don't need really to um, go for the uh, cellular 4G model simply because personal hotspot, which is built and baked right into iOS, works very well and you can use your iPhone or other smartphone device as a hotspot and um, supply data uh, access to uh, the iPad. Um, so that can save you a few pounds there. Um, now, interestingly enough, um, this the range of iPads, um, the colours are space grey, silver and gold. There doesn't appear to be a rose gold finish. Now, I'm not sure if this is an oversight or, or this is a stock issue, but it shouldn't be really, or or whether um, Apple are just reserving the, um, the new 
sort of illustrious rose gold color uh, to the iPad Pro line. So I'm not sure about that. But um, nonetheless, this is the iPad, the standard iPad, uh, entry-level iPad model, and it's priced quite decently if, you, if you're if you looking to upgrade. Particularly, I know a lot of people still have iPad 3s, which were sort of thick and heavier, and they had the old Apple connector, and those are no longer being supported um, as of iOS 10. So this is probably the, the most natural um, course in terms of um, an, an upgrade. And um, I would just, just bear in mind, though, that the iPad is not going to be as thin as the Air 2, it will be certainly be thinner than the um, the iPad fourth generation, or the iPad or the iPad three. Um, it's not as thin as obviously as as the iPad Pro. Now this one comes with the A nine processor, where the iPad Pro has an A nine X processor, but the iPad Pro is beefier simply because it is um, well, I use this term very loosely, considered a professional device. Um, to run sort of more in, um, intensive uh, applications for the creation of content rather than the just the consumption of content. Uh, but the, the iPad, the standard iPad, is in itself still a very capable device and definitely worth checking out if you are basically um, looking to upgrade. Now, um, there were other updates that Apple announced and... Let's just go to the next quick iPad announcement. The iPad Mini um, has been the iPad Mini Two has been discontinued. That's that's done. That's that's discontinued now. The iPad Mini Four um, now has had a bit of a price adjustment, and the thirty-two gigabyte model has been discontinued. So. Um, what Apple have done um, is your cheapest uh, point of entry um, is an iPad mini, obviously. And if we just look at their site, the iPad mini 4 is the highest spec mini iPad there is, right? If you're with me. Now, the iPad mini 4 is now available in different storage tiers to, to, to what it was originally. In actual fact, it's only available in one, 128 gigabytes. You don't have a choice anymore. So um, again, that's silver, gold, and space gray. Don't see any rose gold. Um, and that is basically 419 pounds uh, for the 128 gigabyte model and 549 pounds for the Wi-Fi and cellular model. Um, so, sorry, I say that again. It's £419 for the Wi-Fi only model and £549 for the Wi-Fi and cellular model. Um, so, and it's all, and, and, and there's only one storage tier, it's 128 gigabyte. So I know this is confusing, but Apple are trying to streamline the iPad line now. I can see where they're going at, um, but it, it, it is confusing to explain the differences. Um, so that seems to be the iPad mini 4. That seems to be the only iPad mini available right now. That's the only one, um, which is interesting because I my assumption was that the iPad mini was probably the most popular out of all the iPads. Certainly in the wild, I see more people using minis than anything else, but it seems to be just a standard option. Um, and one wonders why, whether they're sort of trying to phase that out or they're just keeping a, a simple single model there just for those few people. Because from Apple's point of view, they consider the iPad mini the least popular line. But again, 
evidence that I see out in the wild suggests otherwise. Um, and um, yeah, so but if, you, if you've only got one choice, if you're after an iPad mini. Now, um, to continue, um, Apple have also announced um, a red iPhone. A red iPhone 7. Now, this is part of their product red line in which uh, the proceeds go towards uh, the um, HIV AIDS um, research charity. And this is a matted uh, red finished iPhone 7 and iPhone 7 Plus, which come at the standard prices for the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus. Um, but it looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, I don't know if that's because it's shiny new. We haven't seen a red iPhone before, um, but it, it, it looks really nice. Uh, the Apple products always look nice in, in the, um, the, the stock photos. Um, but um, it for those who are wondering, the bezel is white. It's a white colored bezel, not black. So it's red and white combination, um, but that's pretty nice, pretty nifty um, product red iPhone 7 that's available now. Um, so Apple have also um, updated, now bear with me, the iPhone SE. Now the iPhone SE is the smaller iPhone, which is um, in terms of form factor, which resembled the iPhone 5, iPhone 5S. And the iPhone SE is actually quite popular, particularly with younger people, because um, it's quite um, a cheap point of entry in, in, into the iPhone line. And Apple have made some adjustments here in terms of the pricing and the models. So basically the storage um, tiers have changed. Um, so with the iPhone um, SE, um, it's now available, it's now what I would say being bumped up, to 32 gigabyte and 128 gigabyte models. And in terms of the pricing, it I believe remains the same uh, as the um, 16 gigabyte and 64 gigabyte respective pricing, which is 379. It would be now 379 pounds um, for the 32 gigabyte model and 479 pounds for the um, 128 gigabyte model. So it's a bit of a no brainer. Go for 128 if you're interested in an iPhone. SE, but the phone itself has remained the same. There has been no change to the hardware whatsoever, so there's still no 3D touch. Um, Apple have also announced um, brand new watch bands. Yay! Um, always very exciting when new Apple watch bands have been announced. In sarcasm, um, but for those who are interested, I mean, the option, you know, choice variety is, is the spice of life. So what we have now is, and you're better off going on to the Apple website to see these because it's hard to describe. But what we have now are um, uh, striped woven nylon bands. We have different colours. Um, so the striped woven nylon bands, they come in berry, Tahoe blue, orange red, pollen. Now you understand why it's difficult to describe these things. They've also updated the classic buckle, the classic traditional leather buckle, uh, which comes in a variety of colors also. Um, Pebble, Azure, Camilla, um, there's, there's more. 
<laughs> go, go on their website and have a look. Um, and um, there are now standalone Nike sports band, um, Apple Watch bands. Um, as you remember, they, there was an Apple Watch special edition for um, a, a Nike Apple Watch special edition, uh, which is more geared towards um, fitness. Um, now you can get those Nike sports bands individually if you want to switch things up for the gym. So that's not too bad. Um, let's see what else Apple announced. Now, there are new uh, iPhone 7 um, silicon and leather case colors. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's particularly interested in those. Uh, Sapphire, Berry, again, look on their website. So these are all sort of minor um, product updates. Um I mean, you, you can kind of understand why Apple didn't choose to have a large press event to announce these, um, their, their, their minus uh, bumps. And um, in terms of the iPad Pro, we are disappointed that we haven't seen this new form-factored iPad Pro that was rumoured. We may see it at WWDC, although it's unusual for Apple to announce new hardware these days at WWDC. And if they are going to announce new hardware, it will tend to be for the Mac, I would have thought. Um, so we might see new iPads, the iPad Pros, towards the end of the year, actually, particularly if they're going to go with the uh, sort of a new bezel-less um, design form factor because if that's the case, it wouldn't want to steal the thunder of the iPhone 8 or the the, um, the iPhone edition, if, if we recall. That's what it sound, That's what it seems that they're going to be calling um, the 10th anniversary iPhone model that will be released this year. And so they will want to announce that first before saying, hey, we have an iPad that kind of looks similar to this new iPhone. So I would imagine uh, the new iPad may get announced at the same time as the iPhone edition or iPhone 8 or shortly afterwards at uh, an October event. Um, Apple have also announced a video creation um, app called Clips. And um, oh, there's no easy way to describe this. Um, basically, you uh, can shoot very short videos. And I think this is almost like Snapchat. Um, you can apply uh, a number of filters uh, to manipulate the image, uh, creative filters. You can combine videos, images and music into one seamless video. And then, um, so these are short videos, little short statements of expression, if, if you call it that. And then you can share that. Um, you can share that um, across uh, iMessages or other social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram. That's not particularly particularly one for me, but I can see uh, younger people being very interested in that. So give that app a go. It's called Clips and it's uh, available for iPad as well as iPhone.
an interesting app, a very interesting app on the horizon. Um, last year, at some point, Google um, sort of established and opened up a startup incubator called Area 120. And the idea behind that was to um, allow their employees uh, to use some of their own time um, to start up their own small companies, small development companies. Um, and basically... Um, what Area 120 has done is it's released an app called Uptime. So this will be an app. This is an app called Uptime. And this is essentially a group video messaging app. Uh, and it allows you to share videos. Now, let me explain um, what you so you can find um, and have recommended to you videos on YouTube. Right. And you can add friends based on people you know or people with similar interests. So what happens is that you log in with your Google account um, and essentially you guys get together and you can watch a, a YouTube video together simul uh, simultaneously in real time, even though you're in different places. And you can, as you watch it, uh, leave comments, um, feedback, and, and and just general social banter. Now, this is a lot like what Facebook do for Facebook Live, but this is with YouTube, so that makes all the difference. Now, what makes this interesting is imagine something like this, social element, extending to streaming services such as Netflix, for example, um, if you want to watch a film with your significant other, but you're in completely different places, say one of you has travelled to the other side of the world, or you just can't get together that week, you could essentially watch the film simultaneously and then be able to talk while you're on the phone, you know, have the speakerphone going or type a message. Oh, did you see, what did you think of that scene? Or that joke was pretty funny. Um, it brings people together. And I like that idea. I want to see it extended past this, this, this isolated app. And reminds me of the time that Bill Gates told the story about him and his wife, Melinda, in their early days of dating way back in the eighties, when they used to, when they weren't together, when they weren't in the same space, but they wanted to watch a movie together, they would have a video rent, uh, get a video rental VHS and say on the phone, three, two, one, play, play the video simultaneously. So they'll be able to enjoy the viewing experience together. So I like to see this extended to streaming services and I can think of an example now where it would be useful for me so um for example I I spent the last couple of weekends watching or introducing my partner to the Godfather series of movies and we watched part one and we watched part two and it's hard to I mean these are long movies it's hard to fit them in uh, you know, we're going to have free time when we're together and we're not always together. Um, so we need to watch part, th part, uh, part three. And I know people think about part three, but I think it's a, a good conclusion to the story of Michael Collion, but I won't go down that road today. Um, and we need to watch that. So we either wait till we're next together and next both have free time to watch a two and a half hour movie, or we could do something like this, you know, where we can stream the film simultaneously and have a chat about it as it's playing. So I'm all for this idea. Now, uptime at the at the moment is only available to residents of the United States, and but I'm only mentioning it because it is inevitably going to be coming to the UK. And also, not only is it only available to residents of the United States, it's only available to iPhone users. Funnily enough, a Google organization is make has developed an app that's only available on iOS. Okay. Also, it's invitation only. So you've got three things working against you potentially, uh, or two things if you're an iPhone user. And um, 
So it'll probably will come to the UK. Um, it's invitation only. I've seen an invite code online that says pizza. Uh, so let's see if you're basically have access to the US app store. And if you have an, obviously access to the US app store, try downloading uptime and using the invite code pizza. I can't vouch for that because I haven't tried it yet, but this sounds good. It sounds brilliant. And I hope lots of other uh, online services take this sort of uh, social element of consuming media on board. Now some news in the world of cybersecurity, something that we all should be um, aware of as the Internet of Things becomes ever more commonplace in our everyday lives and within our homes. Um, the Nintendo Switch console, Nintendo's brand new console, which is doing very well, um, has a secret web browser of sorts. So there is no web browser that you can access to browse the Internet casually so to speak but you can quite clearly see that there is a browser underneath um the um the switches uh, ui and it's it's evident when for example you are uh, you can tie your nintendo profile to your social um your social network profiles and so when you need to tie it to your you know to give twitter or facebook authorization so that nintendo can communicate to it and post tweets about your gaming and what have you um you can quite clearly see that that authorization you confirm it via a, a web browser um you can also see it uh when um for example if you connect to public wi-fi networks um there are various portal uh, web pages when you access those networks for example say if you're in a uh, mcdonald's or a starbucks or something where you need to uh, accept the terms and conditions before be given access to that network um that again requires a web browser of sorts so there is a web browser underneath now what's happened is someone has found an exploit or rather this exploit is an old ios exploit that already existed and had been patched up by Apple uh, quite a while ago. But it becomes evident that Nintendo, through their web browser, are using uh, WebKit. They're using WebKit standards, but they are using um, an older version of WebKit. Now, the older version that they are using, the outdated version that they are using, still has um this vulnerability which actually is well was you know was well publicized and well documented um so it's actually quite surprising that nintendo has not um you know applied the various security updates that is required of webkit um that they launched the switch with an outdated version although they probably thought that it wasn't much of a priority uh simply because they're not offering um they're not outright offering us uh, access to this web browser but nonetheless you there are ways to get through to it now what how this can be exploited is quite simple uh, i mentioned that you you sometimes get various portal pages when you connect to wi-fi networks and you have to accept the terms and conditions and then you continue um what you could actually what a hacker could potentially do is to compromise a portal page and um execute their own code uh, via that manipulation so what can happen is 
the, I mean, the thing is with Nintendo Switch, there's not much data to steal. So there's not much to worry about. You could say that potentially they could turn a Switch into a surveillance device because obviously we know that there are microphones and even a camera on the uh, the Joy-Con controllers. Um, but other than that, not much else really can be done. Um, so a lot of the time hackers just, just, just find this sort of thing and say, hey, Look, you've been sloppy just to, to basically expose the incompetence of a large uh, tech organization. But um, so this uh, exploit was revealed by uh, an iOS hacker. Um, and all he claimed he did was just to repurpose a hack that was originally used to jailbreak uh, an Apple I uh, iOS device uh, running um, iOS 9.3. Uh, so this is actually quite old. Um, now... As I say, all Nintendo need to do is to keep things up to date, keep uh, various security patches up to date, web WebKit patches up to date, and I'm no doubt that they will uh, probably do this if they haven't done so already. Um, and like I said, there is there isn't really much damage that can be done, nor there is much that can be um, achieved through exploiting. Um, the switch in such a manner, because, or rather, the switch's browser in such a manner, because you cannot and i don't want to advocate piracy but you can't use it to basically pirate games so you can't um execute unofficial code to run applications such as games um and um so in terms of the level of access to the system itself that you get um yeah you, you won't be able to uh, customize or um, tamper with firmware or, like I say, run ROMs. Um, so depending on what way you swing, this is good news or bad news. Um, but, um, yep, that's the exploit. And I fully expect Nintendo to patch that up because uh, they could do without any sort of negative publicity or i can imagine a newspaper such as the daily mail saying oh my gosh nintendo switch devices are hacked um they could be spying on you uh, just to create mass uh, panic and hysteria so i imagine nintendo will definitely patch that one up in other security news and very recent news um there has been and i say this with, with slight laughter and it's not particularly funny um there has been an attempt by hackers or a hacking group uh to extort money from apple um essentially um what they are trying to do is they claim that they have access to a large number of compromised iCloud accounts and because they can get into uh those iCloud accounts they have the ability to wipe devices remotely so the threat is that they will, for ransom, um, hold they will hold hold this data for ransom, and they will threaten the device. Uh, they will sorry, they will wipe the devices unless they are being paid. Hmm. How much do you think this group wants? Well, this group has identified itself as the Turkish crime family, um, and basically want either seventy five thousand US dollars or $100,000 US dollars in iTunes gift cards and the 75,000 US dollars that they want they want it in Bitcoin which is the kind of uh, the cryptocurrency that's out there Pro presumably because they don't want it to be traceable 
Um, and they have demanded Apple have until the 7th of April to meet, you know, to, to basically give in to their demands to pay up or face the consequences of wiping users' devices the world over. Now, first thing, you know, you'd say to that is, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, but apparently they have released, um, they've uploaded a, a YouTube video um, showing them accessing some uh, stolen accounts and um, viewing uh, data as proof. So obviously if you can get to an iCloud account, you can see someone's iCloud emails. You can even see to an extent their iMessages, depending on how it's been set up. But you can certainly see things like photos. I mean, everything gets synced to iCloud these days. Um now, there was a message in response to that video, um, which I think was from Apple asking YouTube that it would be removed. And their statement was, we do not re reward cyber criminals for breaking the law. Um, and basically says that um, the security team um, has an archive of communications with the hacking group and they are going to send those to the authorities so <laughs> here's where it gets even more interesting um so this group claims that they have access to 300 million apple email accounts icloud accounts so that's no small number so it's not just a few people so if there are some incidents things getting wiped here and there's no big deal that's 300 million um they then changed that claim to 559 million. So it, it's jumped up somewhat, and that makes me slightly dubious, but um, um, they've been somewhat even more aggressive uh, recently in terms of pursuing this, this, this amount of money that, uh, that they want, demanding this amount of money. Um, they have sent various messages um, through the media so they're using the media to try and coerce Apple and obviously using um, the threat of negative publicity because security is a big thing right now. Customers want to be reassured that um, Apple's services and Apple's products are secure. So among their statements, this is one of them. I just want my money. And though this would be an interesting report that a lot of Apple customers would be reading and hearing. Right. So... Um, their money okay so they feel like they are entitled to this money which is interesting um now we don't know we really don't know we know that icloud accounts have been hacked in the past i mean all those celebrity um those compromising photos of celebrities have all come from icloud accounts but those um have not that hasn't really been sort of any mass scale hacking um though i think those have been rather smart hackers who have guessed um clever passwords um for example i, mean, I believe one of the celebrities it was just the name of their dog and they tweeted him to tweet a lot about their dog um so but this seems to be a lot more or more widespread and um but there's no evidence there is no real evidence um that um they really have access to over 500 million accounts. Um, now, as for the iCloud um, uh, hacking incident that concerned celebrities, well, that resulted in 
um, prison sentences, didn't it? I think um, two hackers were actually, the, the authorities caught up with them. Two hackers pleaded guilty. One was sentenced to 18 months um, in, in prison and the other one for nine months. Um, one could argue that they had uh, celebrity lawyers pursuing them as well. So they had that. But this 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 apparent crime or extortion attempt does affect you and I, affects everyone. Um, so we're yet to see... Um, any um, examples of them actually uh, deleting someone's iPhone, like for example, so, you know, I don't want to give them ideas, but we've yet to see that happen. We've just seen this this YouTube video, which to be quite honest, could be anyone's account I and mean, it could be a friend, it could be absolutely anyone's account. Now, Apple have actually formally responded now to this ransom threat and their spokesperson has said the following, there have not been any breaches in any of Apple's systems, including iCloud and Apple ID. The alleged list of email addresses and passwords appears to be obtained from previously compromised third-party services. Right, and, and as we know, there have been hacking attempts in the past, um, various things, various websites, um, social networks and, and what have you. And the hackers have actually published um, email addresses and passwords to as proof. And so what this could just be is just a collection of old um, account uh, credentials, which are, while there may be... Um, Apple email addresses, iCloud email addresses, uh, the breach probably may not have been um, one of iCloud. It may have been of a different service and therefore the password might not very well be their iCloud password. We don't know. So Apple are actually denying this. So it gets interesting. So we, we will see uh, whether Apple is just calling the bluff of the hackers or whether um, there's some truth in it or in their demands will fall apart. Let's just see. But you know what? Some of you may be asking, well, this this well, might be saying this, this worries me uh, completely. Um, I don't want my my photos get synced to iCloud. My personal documents get synced to iCloud. I don't want hackers getting their hands on anything. I don't want them to be able to um, erase my device remotely. And not only that, remember, you if you have access to the iCloud account, you have access to find my iPhone, find my iPad and find my Mac. And you can basically track a person. You'll see exactly where their device is if you log into iCloud via a web browser, iCloud.com. So I'm going to recommend um, something that you guys should do. And I don't know if you've done it already. You need to turn on two-factor authentication. That's what you need to do on your iOS devices. Um, now, this will ensure that um, you're the only person who can access your account, even if someone knows your password. And I'll tell you how it works. Um, basically, the password is no longer enough. Once you switch it on, just knowing the password is not good enough. Um, and so once you uh, sign into it and you've switched on two-factor verification, you can establish which devices are trusted. So you have an iPad or an iPhone, um, an iPod Touch, a Mac, whatever. Um, you can say, this is my trusted circle of devices. So therefore, if someone was to um, log in to my iCloud account via a web browser on some computer somewhere else, or someone was to steal my iPhone and log into my iCloud uh, account, um, 
even if they know my password, it's enough, not enough for them to get in because what will happen is that um, a verification uh, code and notification will be displayed, will be first displayed on your other trusted devices for you from those devices um, to confirm whether it, it is actually you trying to access that iCloud account. Now, um, that's, that's rather handy because the idea is that uh, presumably if you have an iPhone and it's been stolen and comp or compromised, you have access to your other devices. Or basically, if someone has logged in to your iCloud account via the web, you have access to your iPhone. And bear in mind that this uh, verification code is a temporary code. So it always changes on every um, every attempt to access your iCloud account. So um, it's not a case of memorizing this code at all. You have to verify that it is you trying to access the account from another one of your devices. And when you get that pop-up window, that little pop-up notice, the verification with the code, um, you also get a little map actually showing the location of where your iCloud device is trying to be accessed from so if you see something on the other side of the globe it will definitely set off alarm bells so this is brilliant and for those of you who don't have multiple ios devices you can also configure trusted phone numbers so the code can be uh, text to you um, and you can do things in that manner so i would definitely say switch on switch on switch on two-factor verification authentication um, it's worth it and it again it, it, it removes the power of the password because it seems to be passwords that are being breached left right and center now basically to switch it on it's quite simple what you need to do is to go to in your ios device go to settings go to icloud and tap your apple id you uh then see uh password and security tap on that and then you'll see a, a turn on two-factor authentication switch so just do that um to do it on your mac um you will go to system preferences icloud then account details then security, and there again, you'll see the option to turn on two-factor authentication. So if you haven't done so already, and you have, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, there's a, there's a strong chance you may have your phone or your iPad in your hands, do so right now. I can't recommend it enough. subject of uh, safety and security, um, I wanted to now talk about um, parental uh, features, um, parental controls, rather, on video game devices. Um, if you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that I picked up a Nintendo Switch. Um, I have children. Um, they also have a PS4, and they have a PC, and they love gaming. Only gaming sometimes can get out of control. Um, they can get in the way of, of schoolwork, of other leisure activities, homework, that sort of thing. And sometimes just yelling at your kids, get off the game machine, isn't enough. Sometimes you're not always there. If you come home from work late on one occasion or, or you have to be elsewhere and you have older children, you're not always there to take the controller away. 
So many people say you should always take a hands-on approach to um, parenting in this respect. Um, But let's not poo-poo the idea of good parental controls. Now, this is related to tech because obviously it, it, it affects our technology. Um, but I, I, I did a bit of research because I wanted to limit the playtime that uh, my, my, my children enjoy on their various machines. And m- most of all, the best controls, built-in parental controls, and there's lots of products you could buy, expensive ones, but the best free built-in controls I've seen on Windows 10. And that's the Microsoft Family Safety feature. And the way family safety works is obviously you set up uh, one Microsoft account, one user, which is tied to that Microsoft account as the parent. You then specify uh, which accounts, say on your on your on your your PC, are the child accounts. Then, as the parent, you have an array of resources at your disposal. You can monitor what applications your children are using and how long they're spending on those applications. You can limit uh, time on the PC. You can say they're only allowed up to, for example, uh, three hours a day on the PC. You can change those limits depending on the day of the week. Three hours on Monday, four hours on Friday, for example. You can set curfews. So anytime from 8.30pm every day, PC switches off. You can also set various uh, web controls and um, application controls. So anything suitable for children. Uh, so children could be limited to things suitable to, to, to their age, for example, various games, various applications or even movies. What you can also do is actually override all of that. There may be an occasion where you've put strict time limits down because, you know, your children are gaming on the PC, but they may need to print off a bit of homework, in which case they can request permission. So there's an option when they're locked out. The PC doesn't shut the PC down, just stops them from having access. So the work is still there in the background. But it says, do you wish to ask a parent for more time? Yes, you do. That parent gets an alert on their phone and you have the option to grant them more time in increments of 15 minutes. And this happens immediately. They get access immediately and and for the duration of time that you set. And also the good thing about it is you get a report sent to you every week showing you what applications have been used, how long those applications have been used for. So you can see exactly what your children are up to. Um, it also shows you um, web pages that they have been frequenting. So these, this is all baked in to um, Windows, Windows 10. And, and this is family safety. And I really urge you parents out there to look into it. Now, you would think that Microsoft also owning the Xbox line of products manufacturing Xbox line of products, you would think that they would extend these controls to the Xbox One console. Well, no, they did not. The Xbox One console does have some very limited parental controls, but that is only to do with the age appropriateness of games. Nothing to do with time limits, nothing to do with curfews. And suspiciously, 
um, the Xbox 360, 360, sorry, the predecessor to the Xbox One did have such controls where you could set time limits and curfews. So why would we, why do we ask, um, is micro, has Microsoft gone backwards in, in terms of parental controls on the Xbox? And that's simply because the conspiracy theorist in me thinks that they want kids to play. They want kids to spend lots of time on Xbox Live, dare I say it, to have a little bit of an addiction because Xbox Live subscription rates are where their bread and butter is at. That's just my theory. Um, I mean, these are sophisticated systems. And so there's no reason why parental controls on the video game consoles should be so flaky. If it can be done on a PC, it can be done on an Xbox. And unfortunately, the same thing can be said about the PlayStation. So very recently, my son got a PlayStation 4 and I was expecting to find some good parental controls on such a powerful and sophisticated and well-made system where there is an, an all number of, of options and different configurations you can make to customize it to your liking. So were there any parental controls? Yes, they were. But it's the same thing. Limit the amount of uh, limit the content appropriateness of um, what's on the console, what the child may have access to. And I think the reason, another reason, rather than the conspiracy theory is that they want people to play online, is that they look at these boxes, the Xbox One, the PS4, as entertainment centres, as media centres. They want these things front and centre in the living room. So they want all the family to use this thing and to um, stream music, stream video, um, all sorts, you know, subscribe to all sorts of subscription services. Um, and if that's the case, then the last thing you want to do is to start imposing curfews on using, on using said media service, media server. So um, I think that's why that's the case. That's very disappointing. So I've had to, um, in the case of the PS4, I've had to use um, a creative way of limiting time when I'm not around is that just to basically put the, uh, attach the PS4 to a timer plug, an old fashioned timer plug or a smart plug where I say that after a certain time, PS4 can't be used. Um, that doesn't, uh, it's not sophisticated enough to, to sort of calculate how many hours they've played for only hours until that point. So what I do is say, okay, between let's say 6.30 and 7.30, that's game in time. You will have power. Power will be supplied to the PS4 during that time only. The problem with that is it unless they're very disciplined, it doesn't give them much time to save their game if, if they're reaching the end of the time limit. And also just a power uh, a, a power timer, a timer plug just cutting out in the middle of a gaming session could do the PS4 some damage. So that's not ideal, but it seems to be the only way. I mean, alternative to, to a, a, a timer plug, you can use a smart plug. You just control things remotely. You can override the um, switch off period remotely. So a, a smart plug is also a, a good option. Now, this um, re reminds me of what you have some primitive methods back in the day um, when we had um, Nintendo cartridges, the old Nintendo entertainment system. And we had basically um, products such as the Homework First. And if you remember the Homework First, um, but it was almost like a clamp, um, that word or vice that, that um, holds the cartridge slot in place. And what it does is that it could, it will, it will only release at certain times. And um, not so much at certain times, sorry, it, it will it will only release when you put in the um, appropriate combination. And 
So a parent would have to do that, obviously, and that would prevent the child from just playing willy-nilly. And so, um, I mean, it looks absolutely ridiculous, but then it would prevent them from accessing the cartridge slot unless, of course, they already had a cartridge in there, in which case they could play it no matter what. Um, so it was a combination lock type thing. And it, it, it's quite hilarious because it was a control for as in how much your family plays Nintendo. And it was endorsed by the Council for Children's Television and Media in the USA. And we had similar products over here in the UK. Um, and other ridiculous features, for example... Um, it helps ensure that saved games are not accidentally erased. Absolutely ridiculous. But you know what? People even back then realized that, you know, video gaming can become an addiction for children. And we, we've got to do what we can to try and in, encourage um, or, or try and while we try and encourage self-discipline, we have we have tools to hand. Let's use the tools to hand as well to help in, in, in enforce our own policies within our homes. So. That was the homework first, which is, was ridiculous. But um, what I was actually quite pleasantly surprised about was the Nintendo Switch's parental controls. Now, I like that because um, I'm able to download a, a smartphone application. And again, like um, the PC option, Microsoft Family Sharing, I could say that I have a Nintendo Switch account where uh, I'm the parent. Or not even that, to be quite honest. You don't have to have a Nintendo. You don't have to have a, a player account to have to be able to control things. What you can do is you go into settings, you download a smartphone app and it's on ios and on android and over your wi-fi network it identifies your nintendo switch you put in your details to verify your age you basically um confirm which uh, nintendo accounts are that of your children now they'll have to confirm at their end that you're their parent easy enough to do and then when once that's done, um, the Nintendo Switch app will monitor every day what games are being played. It won't tell you who's playing them. That's 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 a shame. It doesn't identify things on an individual a user basis, but it tells you what games have been played and how long those games have been played for. Now, what you can do, is you can impose curfews and you can have different curfews with different days of the week and you can um, impose play limit time, um, again, for diff different settings for different days of the week. Uh, for example, two hours, three hours. Again, the problem is this is not per user. So if you have more than one child, you're going to have to tell them to share access to the switch within that set period of time so nintendo could easily fix that via a software update but I'm, I'm hoping that they do now um what you can do and by default when time is up the child gets a warning on the tv saying time's up you get a little bell ringing and the idea is the child needs to learn discipline and realizes okay time's up i have switched things off now in a perfect world that would be enough but we don't live in a perfect world and children will try and flout and break the rules. So there is an option within the app to suspend the software, send the switch to sleep mode, lock it out um, immediately when that limit has been reached. Now, the good thing about it is that the child will be reminded, I believe, 30 minutes before, five minutes before the limit has been reached so that they have every opportunity to save their game progress. So I like Nintendo's strategy there. I think it needs to extend to individual user controls, though. Um, there are also limits uh, for um, uh, the type of games that can be played based on age appropriateness and, and things like that. Um, and that smartphone app is absolutely free. It's available on iPhone and Android, Google Play Store. And 
also, I, I think that um, Nintendo have done it in a, re in a really sort of um, parent-first manner. It's not just a bullet point feature. Oh, yeah, we got parental controls and they don't put, put much attention into it. And you get this idea even by just watching the video. And I'll put a lo link in the show notes. And it's an adorable animated video that has Nintendo character Bowser and his little son bowser jr and bowser um, bowser jr is playing a game and bowser um isn't, isn't happy with, with with how often bowser jr is playing it and tries to impose limits and it's quite an adorable video that one's going to go in the show notes have a look at that but um i'm very impressed with the switch's parental controls right now certainly the best parental controls of all the gaming consoles uh, at the moment um i'm disappointed with ps4 and xbox one i know the agenda is different but uh, something definitely needs to be done now, anyone that knows me personally uh will know the obvious thing i'm a black man i'm a black british man um and knows that i love the era of 70s black pop culture and in particular, the black exploitation movement of the 1970s. As a black man, it is nice. Well, first of all, I wasn't alive during the 70s. Let's get that straight. But it was nice to it's nice to look back and to see uh, black culture celebrated, albeit in an exploitative way, but celebrated on screen um, and to see black heroes lead in movies. And we have such iconic characters such as John Shaft or Foxy Brown or Cleopatra Jones. You know, we have um, stars from that era such as Pam Greer today, were highly revered stars. So um, I'm a big fan of the era, I'm a big fan of the movement. Now, it's my pleasure actually to give props to a, a, a museum uh, that is open in a museum that is open to all, as open 24 hours a day. This museum is actually the planet's first virtual museum dedicated to the celebration and preservation of funk, or rather, of black culture, 1970s black culture and all things funky. It actually is called the Museum of Uncut Funk, and it is an absolute brilliant mishmash of... Um, let's say, uh, video clips, um, commercials, movie clips, uh, comic book strips, slideshows, exhibitions, all sorts of manner, all, all expressions of pop culture belonging to that era, celebrating black culture of that era. Please, please, please check this out and give it a look. Um, I'll give you the link in a second, but just tell you a little bit more about it. Um, and from the words of its founder, um, who is known as Sister Too Funky, um, it's um, not a brick and mortar establishment, but an Internet outpost for all things retro, black and funky. We're always here. We're always funky. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, you can see things such as cultural artifacts, such as uh, Fat Albert uh, and the Cosby Kid cartoons, um, for example, um, uh, throwbacks to black exploitation movies, as I mentioned, uh, vintage black glamour, uh, a black Barbie exhibition, um, all sorts, all sorts. There's just so many things there. Um, you know, there, there's even uh, an Afro slideshow, people, anyone from Jesse Jackson to Jimi Hendrix, um, it, you know, like a traditional museum, um, there are titles and text panels, descriptions and things, and things that accompany every exhibition or every picture or video. Um, so you get to learn a little bit about that things rather than just sort of 
staring at things thinking oh that looks nice you get to learn a little bit what was going on during the time and what that movement actually meant um you know um, they've got brilliant artwork like uh movie one sheets for films such as uh, the Wiz and Blackula, which is which is a guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, that was a 1972 black exploitation horror film. Check it out if you can. Um, I mean, there's all sorts. There's so much there, and I do recommend. You know, if if you if you dig that era, and you dig the culture, and it doesn't matter if you're black, right, white, yet red or yellow. If you dig any part about it, check it out. The website to get to is museumofuncutfunk.com. That's museumofuncutfunk.com. Check it out. I'm, I'm browsing right now and they've got the Jack, look, they've added the Jackson 5 um, cartoons. I haven't seen those in years. Um, definitely, definitely check it out. Music, video, pictures, comics, all sorts of art, all sorts of pop culture, artifacts of pop culture. It's a true celebration of the era. Do check it out. I will put the link into the show notes just so you don't forget. Well, that's about all the time we have for this edition of The Intersection. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you for joining us. Just before we go, I just wanted to say a brief, um, a, a brief tribute um, to Chuck Berry. We sadly lost uh, the rock and roll legend Chuck Berry uh, last Saturday, who died at the age of 90. Um, now, um, many people may you know may may very well be aware of chuck berry's works um and some people may be less aware but certainly most people would have heard his biggest um commercial hits um johnny be good roll over beethoven and chuck berry is often described and has been described by the mainstream media since his passing as one of the fathers of rock and roll um i disagree with that he was the father of rock and roll he invented rock and roll the song maybelline which he recorded in 1955 is widely regarded as the very first rock and roll song and no marty mcfly did not invent that sound it was chuck berry himself little pop culture joke there so rest in peace chuck berry um we may have lost another musical great but as always the music will live on forever um that's about it guys so that's a wrap until the next edition of the intersection um please stay safe keep it funky and um i will leave things with uh, this little musical tribute to the great legend that is Chuck Berry. Enjoy, and until the next time. We got to do our alma mater. We must do our alma mater. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back.